You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. When you come to events like this, you bring the Art Gallery of Ontario alive, and it's really very meaningful to us. So thank you so much for being here. And I don't know how many of you have seen uh, the exhibition yet, but I'm just going to say it. It's one of the best exhibitions we've ever done. So we're really pleased about that. I want to acknowledge Francis Warner and his wife Penelope who are here tonight. Francis is going to speak to us in just a few moments. Uh, the exhibition, Terror and Beauty, Henry Moore and Francis Bacon, Terror and Beauty, was organized originally by the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. Uh, and it was curated there by Richard Calva Caressi, the executive director of the Henry Moore Foundation, and Martin Harrison, the editor of the Francis Bacon Catalogue Resonne. For those of you who don't know, Catalogue Resonnés are those big fat things that get produced documenting every work by an artist, and he's hard at work at the, on the Francis Bacon Catalogue Resonne. I want to acknowledge that we're joined by two of my great colleagues, uh, today, Henry Kim, who's the director of the yet-to-be-opened Aga Khan Museum, and I just want to say to Henry, it's going to be great. And one of my truly esteemed and remarkable international colleagues, Christopher Brown, the director of the Ashmolean Museum. Just stand up, Christopher, just for the heck of it. And Francis is going to be great tonight, but I just want you to know that Christopher did a little round table for staff today, and it was remarkable and very generous of you, talking about a museum that was founded in 1653 or 1658. 1683. 50, 50, 1683. See, I, I get so, you know, gobbled up here. We were founded in 1900. How do you feel? Uh, I wanted also to say that it gives me great pleasure and I've been able to do this now a couple of times already to uh, welcome Henry Donowski, the grandson of Henry Moore, and his mother, Mary Moore. Maybe you'll just stand up and say hello. <laughs> Mary came in and told us to move just a few things. We thought we got off pretty easy. <laughs> Uh, the one thing about Mary is she's always right, so thank you, thank you, thank you. I want to say that Gillian McIntyre and Laura Comerford, who are two wonderful employees of the AGO, have made a huge difference to this exhibition. I know you're both here. Gillian and Laura, thank you very, very much. And I want to acknowledge Dan Adler, who is a, uh, a university art professor at York University. We went to him in our moment of need, which was to say, could you help us bring the work of these two great artists alive for a Toronto audience? And he did. And where is Dan Adler? There he is. Dan, thank you very much. So Dan is the curator of the Toronto showing uh, of the exhibition. Thank you, Dan, truly. I want to acknowledge with great pleasure Stephen and Michael Latner families. The Latners have been great supporters of the visual arts and culture across Canada. They've been particularly good friends to us. I just want to say we really, really welcome your support and appreciate it very much. I also want to acknowledge Metropia, who came forward with the Latner families to make this exhibition possible. Hank, thank you very much for all you did. 
I'm also uh, grateful to Alan Malka-Green and Tim and Francis Price, who el also helped us with additional support, the Government of Ontario for their generous support ongoing, the Department of Canadian Heritage through the Canada Travelling Exhibitions Indemnification Program, which actually helps us offset some of the insurance costs, and it's a huge and welcome federal government program. So, um, those of you who have seen the exhibition will know that this is pretty extraordinary. It's not so much a dialogue between artists as it is a way in which two artists help us understand the world that we once inhabited and future issues that come out of the turmoil and conflict that they experienced. Tonight, Dr. Francis Warner, who's come to Toronto, is going to share his thoughts with us about the exhibition. Dr. Warner is the Emeritus Fellow of St. Peter's College. University of Oxford, and the Honorary Fellow of St. Catherine's College in Cambridge. Now, I don't know, I think it's probably pretty unusual getting Oxford and Cambridge in one sentence. I just have a hunch. Uh, he is a noted poet and has written numerous books on art, music, and literature. He was a friend of both Francis Bacon and Henry Moores, and we're really pleased that you've come to join us tonight to share your thoughts. With great pleasure, Francis Warner. It is a joy to be here. May I thank you, Director and Chief Executive Officer Matthew Teitelbaum, for honoring me with this invitation to speak to you at the opening of the Art Gallery of Ontario's exhibition of works by Francis Bacon and Henry Moore. An exhibition fresh from four months on display at the Ashmolean Museum, Oxford, England, where I am delighted to report to you that the total number of visitors was 44,698. <laughs> the point is, this figure makes it by far the most successful exhibition ever held at the Ashmolean. With me as curators were Martin Harrison, you've heard, and Richard Calvacoresi, who's on his way to us now. To them I give heartfelt thanks for their many hours of work and their expertise in creating the Oxford version. And all three of us particularly offer our thanks and our affection to Mary Moore, Henry's daughter, who knows more about her father's work and of course her father than anyone living. Her support has been appreciated, unstinting, and invaluable. Also to Christopher Brown, the legendary director of the Ashmolean Museum, who has so successfully rebuilt it and expanded it and updated it, for his faith in us to create the Oxford Exhibition. And we congratulate Dan Adler on the exhibition that you have provided tonight, so thoughtfully curated. On the 1st of December, 1968, I gave a poetry reading and a lecture, thank you, and a lecture on Samuel Beckett, 
at St. Michael's College here in Toronto. And as a result of that poetry reading, I was invited to be the guest of Samuel Zacks at 200 Bay Street. Ayala, his wife, was away in Israel. And he introduced me, Sam did, to his art collection, which included five sculptures of Henry Moore. One of them, Woman 1957-8, is in today's exhibition. Sam Zacks had met Mr. Moore when he visited Toronto en route to Montreal to advise on his locking piece, which was to be shown at Canada's great exhibition, Expo 67. Sam Zacks asked me what was going on in England. He knew that 41 younger artists had signed a letter to the Times in London on the 26th of May, 1967, protesting that Harold Wilson, the Prime Minister, through the Treasury, was putting up a large sum of money to help house Henry Moore's generous gift to the nation of between 20 and 30 major works for the Tate Gallery. The signatories protested against the government devoting itself so manifestly to the work of a single artist. As a result, the Tate had been dragging its feet. Henry Moore had been hurt by this, and indeed he talked about it in some detail with me. Now, in contrast, he was heartened by the unaffected freshness and the generous enthusiasm of your director here, William Withrow, of Sam Zacks, president of the AGO, Edmund Bovey, who was to succeed him as president, and many other Canadians. Ottawa had just accepted a centennial gift of a more bronze from the British government for its new National Library, and collectors here, such as John and Sidney Eaton, the Fahelis, they all followed Sam and Ayala Zax's lead in buying his works. Then, in May 1968, the University of Toronto awarded Henry Moore an honorary degree in law. The result of all this was his gift to you of the works that now, forever, are in your specially built Moore Gallery Wing. This was opened by your Premier, William Davis, with Henry Moore and Ayala Zacks on Saturday the 26th of October, 1974. On the Thursday before, there'd been a preview of the new building, followed by a vice-regal reception by the Lieutenant Governor of Ontario, the Honourable Pauline McGibbon, and the President and Board of Trustees of the AGO. On the Friday, a bus tour of Toronto was arranged for us, not least to see Moore's Archer that had been unveiled before 10,000 citizens of Toronto uh, to the sound of two bands, I remember, the Metro Toronto Pipe Band and that of the Royal Regiment of Canada, almost to the day eight years earlier. On Sunday, we were all taken on a tour of the Niagara Peninsula with Mrs. Hersenhorn 
eating lunch at Niagara on the lake. Henry had generously brought me and my 11-year-old daughter, Georgina, with him as his guests. And at the official dinner, to mark the opening, my small daughter was seated next to that great photographer, Karsh of Ottawa, who, to my astonishment, clearly understood children and memorably told her how he had managed to capture his photograph of Winston Churchill with fierce bulldog expression by suddenly pulling the cigar out of Churchill's mouth and photographing his instinctive and pugnacious response. <laughs> it was, in short, as you can see, an historic week for this great institution, which I and my little daughter were privileged to share. And today, 40 years later, Henry Moore returns, not in his person, but in his works, and represented by his daughter, Mary. <laughs> On the day of its opening, Sam Zacks introduced me to a young, brilliant, and charismatic entrepreneur whom he was clearly grooming to be his successor in the Toronto worlds of property and collecting art. His name was, and is, Albert Latner. In 1974, he was already on your board of trustees. He, with Temi, his wife, invited Georgie and myself to have lunch with them in the hope that I might advise them on their rapidly growing collection of 20th century art. Lunch that day changed our lives in the most positive way. And I should like to take this opportunity publicly to thank Albert Latner and his family here for their munificent grant that they have made to the AGO that has made this whole exhibition possible. Bacon and Moore shared the same London dealer, the Marlborough Gallery, but they themselves were neither friends nor enemies Indeed, they could hardly have been more different. Henry Moore was born a Victorian, the son of a coal miner in Castleford, Yorkshire, on the 30th of July, 1898. Francis Bacon was born an Edwardian in Dublin, 28th of October, 1909, of wealthy country house stock. Moore was loved and to the end of his life, talked tenderly of rubbing his mother's back to ease her rheumatism. Bacon claimed he was many times horsewhipped on his father's orders by young, unmarried grooms in the stables and was neglected by his mother. Moore went to the local state schools. Bacon, from 1924 to 26, to what we call public school, which is a private one, Dean Close School at Cheltenham. Moore went on to lead School of Art and the Royal College of Art, where he later taught. Bacon claimed he had no art training. Moore was a strong and healthy man, happily married all his adult life, living at Perry Green in the country with Irena and their beautiful daughter, Henry fascinated by, and later famously drawing, the sheep. 
bacon, unhealthy, asthmatic, loathed animals, li lived a homosexual urgent urban bachelor, mainly in London, more conscientious and socially responsible, was on the board of many foundations. Bacon, a solitary, living in a mews near Harrods, moved in the shadows. Soho his recreation, the underworld providing him friends. Bacon's art depends on the ephemerality of the flesh, on sudden movement, the fleeting moment and its consequences. More disliked movement in sculpture, frisking, dancing figures and so on. A sculpture jumping off his pedestal is something I greatly dislike, he said. <laughs> he sought the timeless, the landscape, rocks, pebbles, bones, the structure of human beings, the sleepers in the underground. The nation's tribute to the sculptor was a service of thanksgiving for the life and work of Henry Moore, OMCH, 1898 to 1986, in Westminster Abbey. The painter died suddenly on a trip to attempt to rekindle a relationship with a young man in Spain, in Madrid, 28th of April, 1992. As he requested, there was no ceremony and no one was invited to his incineration. Let me tell you a personal anecdote now to give you the flavor of the background to my friendship with these two artists, both friendships lasting over a quarter of a century, both of whom loved poetry and plays, which is where I come in, and collected my work as it was published. Bacon's London studio in South Kensington, Seven Rees Mews, consisted of two rooms over a garage in a muse of converted carriage stables, which one approached down a narrow lane of bricks and cobbles, and then reached by climbing a precipitous wooden staircase, which usually provided a rough hand rope to hold onto as one ascended to the battered door at the top. In spite of his wealth, Bacon lived here for the last 30 years of his life. One afternoon in 1968, I had just completed my descent after visiting him, where he had reminded me with some relish that though Henry Moore was about to be celebrated for becoming 70, he, Bacon, was only still in his 50s. Well, he was 59. It's a very, very catty remark. However, I walked on into Kensington pondering on this, passing past Harrods, and wondered what present to give Henry for this important birthday. And at my wit's end and seeking inspiration, I went into Harrods, into the pets department, which was uh, on the ground floor, and stared at a pair of double-headed skinks. Now, you probably know much more about double-headed skinks than I do. They're weird Australian shingleback lizards, like a push me pull you, with identical ends to deceive predators. Like a double circumcision, said Francis. <laughs> However, if you pick one up to peer, it's a one in two chance, you'll regret it. <laughs> For an artist who a year or two earlier had been given an elephant skull by Julian Huxley, I saw this as an 
ideal present for a poet to give to a sculptor. I found myself paying for a pair and asking for these double-headed skinks be sent to Perry Green, Moore's home. Irena's wife, Irena, his wife, was either away or out at the time when they arrived, but Henry was delighted, got in touch at once. There was a long silence. When Irena returned, apparently, well, you can see what happened. Henry sent a second message to say that Irena wouldn't have them anywhere near her, so he'd sent them back to Harrods. <laughs> But Moore had been fascinated by their shape and their consistency, both hard and soft, rough and smooth. However, Irena's love of her greenhouse, full of equally suggestive cactus plants, to me a kind of vegetable equivalent, with their thick, hard, fleshy stems but no leaves, prickles against predators, Irena's love of these did not transfer to the animal kingdom. However, sculpturally fascinating. My guess is that, like me, uh, she had been squirted in the eye. <laughs> I never found out. Anyway, her dislike drove these bizarre paradoxes back to Kensington. These distortions. People often ask me about the distortions of the human body in the work of these two men. I answer, all art is distortion to another human. One of my eyes is far better than the other, therefore I dare say I see nothing in the same way that you do. No, think of it differently. Moore and Bacon lived through two world wars. Moore fought in the first, and when wounded became a bayonet instructor, teaching how to pierce humans. Bacon was a firefighter, in the Second World War, an ARP, Air Raid Precautions, uh, volunteer, pulling the dead and facially disfigured or the maimed screaming from burning houses. Not surprisingly, both Henry and Francis viewed the human body through tears. The difference between them is that Moore's are tears of wonder and compassion. Bacon's are tears of physical ecstasy and horror. Moist your eyes now, present with me in this room. Moist your eyes. Then look at the person near you, and you will see a Bacon or a Moore. Let me show you how. As one stands in front of Bacon's lying figure, 1971, in yellow, blue, and black, we see three blinds pulled down excluding the light and the gaze of the outside world. But, as we look longer, we notice that two of them are in a frame, and one is not. Also in the frame is a writhing figure whose head is not immediately apparent. It dawns on the viewer, taking this in, who has perhaps not read the full title of the painting, that we are looking in a mirror. The two blinds are therefore behind us, and the third one is in front. So we realize, gradually, that we are in the same enclosed room as the reclining figure. In fact, we are looking at ourselves in the mirror. The writhing, palpitating flesh is each one of us, undressed, alone, in a private space with the blinds down. 
Now turn to Moore's sculpture, Reclining Figure, Festival 51. Here is a remarkably similar solution to the same artistic problem of representing the human form, but this time not in movement, not in a confined space. Moore wanted his sculpture to be seen out of doors as part of nature. Yet, in all sorts of ways, which I won't go into, the distribution of planes, the use of the bended arms to see through, those sort of things are oddly similar. They're not influencing other, each other. This isn't an exhibition about the influence. They just both, in their different ways, are coming to the same conclusions, given the time they're living in, seeing the smooth, vulnerable human form through tears. Moore's art often invokes tenderness, but it is not sentimental. There is a fascinating figure here that Henry Moore created for his daughter Mary. This is the plaster for the bronze of Maquette for Mother and Child, 1952. But here, interestingly, the compassion is not for the vulnerable baby, but for the vulnerable mother. He talked of it. Memories of his and Irena's broken nights gave this unforgettable image where a greedy baby reaches for and is held back from the breast by a mother who is so nipple swollen, sore and sleep deprived that her head is simply represented by the top of a toothbrush <laughs> whose bristles are fangs, which is of course Moore's shorthand for what she's thinking. Bacon's art is not tender, and it is important to remember that war is what these two have in common. In the Second World War, Bacon volunteered for civil defense and worked in the Kensington area of London, firefighting the uh, blazing buildings and rescuing after air raids. But he had also experienced the bombing in the First World War of London his biographer tells us what struck Francis vividly were the blackouts, when the streets and houses stood in gloom and searchlights raked the night sky for Zeppelin's stealthy approach. The sight of their monstrous bulk, as much as the whine of their falling bombs, terrified Londoners. For a withdrawn child with a morbid imagination lying in the dark, the suspended threat of death and destruction was to become a lasting reality. Sam Hunter's photograph of news clippings in Bacon's studio in 1950 includes a page that he'd torn out of picture post showing the Nazi Gestapo chief, Joseph Himmler, haranguing a crowd. In 1945, before the end of the Second World War, Bacon caught unforgettably the atmosphere of this time in Figure in a Landscape, 1945, Tate Gallery. You can see here a suit without a body sits on a reversed iron chair, only his hands painted as two microphones catch his empty words. In a different treatment of this theme, Study for Man with Microphones 46, first date, that's later. There are four microphones, but in this one, in the Tate Gallery painting, 
seeking, as so often, ambiguity. He has only two, so that they can also, and they do, give the impression of a characterless pair of hands in white cuffs and suit, machine gunning the art gallery's spectators. And in this disturbing image of anonymous sudden violence, Bacon speaks from first-hand experience for the many of us who lived for five years in streets intermittently raked by machine gun fire from above and know that a dictator's amplified words soon become bullets. Moore's art recording this experience is different. In October 1940, he was bombed out of his Hampstead studio. He responded to this by drawing a series of, in a series of sketchbooks, sleepers, women and children sheltering from the night air, air raids in the London underground. Kenneth Clark saw some of these private sketches and at Clark's invitation, Moore continued them as an official war artist from 1940 to 1942. The finished drawings worked up from his sketchbooks quickly won international acclaim. They do not record violence. Rather, the quiet determination, stoicism, adaptability, and common decency of ordinary Londoners facing our extreme conditions. And in this exhibition, you will see two evocative drawings made by Moore in 1941, during the Blitz on London, a time when my own home, with us in it, bombed us out. One titled, Study for Morning After the Blitz, so that's what it looked like, and the other, Falling Buildings, all around us. You will also see some of Moore's famous shelter drawings, sleepers, mainly women and children, sheltering on the platforms of the London Underground. I draw your attention particularly to one now titled Three Fates. Plato, you remember, tells us in Book 10 of his Republic that a man called Ur, E-R, was left for dead on the battlefield, but he revived and reported back to us what he'd observed in the next world. He'd seen the three fates, the daughters of necessity, Clotho, who spins the thread of each person's life, Lachesis, who measures the thread, and Atropos, who severs it. It's not hard to understand why, among these pictures of Londoners sheltering from the Nazi bombs in 1941, he should choose to draw the three fates. Every one of us knew that with each present raid, the length of our lives was being measured. And no one could know whose thread of life Atropos would have severed by morning. Later in the exhibition, he takes up this theme in a, one of the most magnificent ones in the exhibition, a large picture, four figures in a setting, 1948, which is clearly a building adapted to become an air raid. You can see its windows are concreted out. With the three fates, but one is hidden, Atropos, by a blood-streaked screen of concrete. Yes, you can see the red there. 
uh, to the right of the frame. And a fourth figure, representing you or me after an air raid, coming in from the left-hand side, wondering what the result of that raid was and what one's own fate is to be, but as yet unable to see the hidden figure of Atropos. It is the human counterpoint to his drawing morning after the blitz. Now notice that Moore is depicting the results, the passive responses to this all-consuming violence. The spectator at times feels something of one's response to artistic representations of that passive suffering of Christ. Bacon's interest is not in passive response, but active violence and the immediate emotional depth that is opened up by it. In his sexual life, he was an extreme masochist. Though the opposite to Moore from origin in so many ways, one of the interesting awarenesses that surfaces, placing them together in this exhibition, is that products of the same violent and war-scored half-century, they come from opposite directions to similar techniques in resolving artistic dilemmas. Bacon, too, turns to the ancient Greeks for what he calls his armature. In his second version of the triptych painted during one of the worst moments of the last 12 months of the war, studies for figures at the base of a crucifixion, second version, 44, in 98. Here it's not the three fates of Henry Moore, but three furies of Aeschylus. This is a terrifying triptych one of the most visceral and horrific in all 20th century art. One could hardly have a more extreme contrast in the visual art of rhyming concepts than what each artist, both artists, have taken from Greek literature. In art, up until this time, up until he painted this picture, Golgotha, the crucifixion, would show the three figures at the foot of the cross as the three Marys, you can see here. Mary Magdalene, Mary Clopas, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, just as we are told in St. John's Gospel. We see their grief by the expressions on their face, on their faces. Neither Bacon nor Moore were believing Christians. In fact, Bacon was a militant atheist. Uh, yes, nihilist, really. Now, Bacon takes this trope of the three at the foot of the cross and shows us not what the grief of the three Marys looks like, but he turns this inside out. Three figures here reveal not the outward show of emotion, but are so presented as to create in the viewer the emotions of panic and despair that the Marys are experiencing. Note the title refers to a crucifixion. There had been many crucifixions before Calvary, and now London itself was being crucified. To view this work with your full attention is to create in yourself an emotional response that you will never forget for the rest of your life. Moore's response to the crucifixion of London that means most to me is the warrior with shield of 1954. Again, it's passive. 
The warrior is skinny as we all were. Food having nearly run out, we were down to one week's supply of food in the country, relying on the Atlantic convoys from you, reaching us through the stalking German U-boats. One arm has been severed off from the left shoulder. One leg is a stump. Yet, looking up, still at the invading bombers, with his right hand, he holds up a small shield. To anyone of my age who lived through it, this can only speak of the endurance, that dogged spirit with which England endured Hitler's onslaught on our homes with only the smallest of shields, the Royal Air Force, in which your pilots also flew and fought, determined to hope to the last. This period, or a little bit later, is also recalled for me by Bacon's painting, Man Kneeling in Grass, 1954. When the food ran out, my mother cooked us and kept us alive on nettle soup. We in the vicarage, of course, remembered, because my father was vicar of Epsom, uh, the book of Daniel, chapter 4, verse 33. King Nebuchadnezzar did eat grass as oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, as were our own bodies after a night in the garden Anderson air raid shelter. This painting is another of Bacon's very greatest, but such is his versatility that it makes its claim on our intellect first, and then it horrifies. At first glance, it is a nude man on all fours, apparently eating grass. But look, the heavily painted black and slanted rectangles that frame the figure place the viewer, us, securely in a dark room, looking out at this nude who is unaware of us. His bottom is to our left, and his head, down and almost out of sight, is to our right. He kneels with his legs parted amongst the long grass. If you stand in front of it, this is what you see. If you move to the left, this is what you see. If, however, you move to the right and press your shoulder right against the wall on which the picture is hanging and look for a while, it takes time, you begin to appreciate Bacon's technical genius. The nude man has turned right round. He's now facing the other way. His bottom is towards you. More frightening is the new fact that whereas before you had thought that you were alone watching a nude man who was unaware of your voyeurism, you now see someone who's been watching you all the time. A shadowy figure's shoulders with the bottom part of his head looms up from the grass behind the arch of the grassy nude's back, watching you in that very central position right opposite where you saw him in the where you saw the picture in the first place and thought you were all alone. Yet he cannot be seen from the front. This was painted in 1952 with the fear of nuclear war in the air. Are we all, after a nuclear war, to be reduced to eating grass once more, or nettles? or even when naked, spied on by people who do not know that they themselves are being spied on. It is, of course, and you recognize it, the older ones of you, 
the looking glass world of the Cambridge spies and the Cold War warming. The next year, Bacon painted the picture, one of, I think it is three in this exhibition, of study for a portrait uh, seven where the Pope is confined by his purple robes and sitting up in what might be his coffin and screams at the viewer. As in so many of Bacon's paintings, the figure is offset by transparent rectangles. Critics often make reference, it's an easy reference, to Adolf Eichmann's bulletproof glass at his trial. But I'd like to add another perspective. Bacon would often <laughs> castigate me for my Christianity. How can you believe such things? You say what distinguishes humans from animals is speech. But they communicate. Is morality, ability to tell right from wrong, I'll tell you what truth is, mathematics, pure, unsullied mathematics. The very word rectangle, right angle, reveals its pristine morality. What is more, mathematics, right angles, the stars, the planets in their orbits, are wholly oblivious to the mess humans make of their lives and the fantasies and the deceptions they live by. So, with that in your eye and mind, look again. The Pope, ineffectual, buried in his robes, rises from his coffin, is indeed surrounded by the perfect truths of mathematics, which, in his glass cube, imprison and ignore him. As with Moore's famous King and Queen, which isn't in our show, but you know it, the discrepancy is between the viewer's expectation of status, which is reverence, and the vulnerability, unease, and inadequacy of the person who's holding the status. Some of you will recall that 17th century gossip called John Aubrey. And he wrote of William Shakespeare, his father was a butcher, and I have been told heretofore by some of his neighbors that when he was a boy, he exercised his father's trade. But when he killed a calf, he would do it in high style and make a speech. Now, this is hopelessly, wildly inaccurate. It must have come from the neighbors. Shakespeare's father was a glover, made gloves. Now, it is true that on Thursdays, when the animals were being killed for the coming Sunday joints, the meat, John Shakespeare would visit the Stratford Abattoir to select the finest leather for his gloves. And no doubt William went with him, and no doubt they held the animals and helped with the slaughter. But to kill a calf is actually slang in Elizabethan theatrics for making a high rhetorical performance of a speech. And Aubrey has taken that and told the anecdote backwards and got it wrong. Now, what is interesting for us tonight is that Henry Moore tells us when he was a boy in his Yorkshire mining village, he used to go with two or three other boys to the abattoir, to the slaughterhouse, and see the animals being killed. The men who killed them used to do this by hitting them with a mallet in the center of the forehead. If they hit exactly the right spot, the skull opened and the animal died at once. But if they didn't, they had to hit two or three times more 
Henry said this was a terrible experience that haunted him all his life. After this, Henry fought in the 1418 war and experienced the reality of hand-to-hand -hand bayonet fighting in a wet trench after only two hours sleep. Later, having been gassed, he put his practical experience of this into becoming, for the last part of the war, an instructor in bayonet fighting. Shakespeare's reworking of his experiences with the abattoir gave us the compassionate understanding, of course, of his battle scenes. But the combination of Moore's two experiences gave us his bronze head, 1955, split open just as he'd seen as a boy, and even more profoundly moving sculpture, Warrior's Head, 53, where, look at it carefully, the soldier's skull has been split open so suddenly, he was probably asleep in the trench, and the quickest way is just to put it down, then your bullet doesn't make a noise, that he's not even had time to scream. And Moore has drawn our attention to this by drawing his mouth and putting a cross across it. He's mute. Bacon's maimed faces at times recall the bodies he rescued from the bombed and falling houses. Memory plays a large part in them. His biographer, Michael Pepiat, tells us he painted his friends' faces only from memory, referring to photographs which John Deacon had taken, full face and in profile. He used to study his friends as he talked to them and then distilled these movements <coughs> full face and in profile. Um, the shadows, the light, uh, the dominant characteristics of their personalities. Real friendship, he used to say, is a state in which two people pull each other to pieces. With his brush, he sought violently to show what he called all the pulsations of a person. Look here at his portrait of Elizabeth Rawsthorne in 1966 to see what I mean. If you want violent reconfiguration, look at Portrait of Man with Glasses, 63. I'd love to talk to you about all these, but there's not time. He also gave his own emotions in coded pictures, such as Two Studies from the Human Body, 1975. Here, one nude is within a frame against a black background. He is crouched, balancing with his back to us, at the point of two planks, forming a V that pokes into darkness. The other figure, on a green ground, bends down to pick up a piece of discarded newspaper. The face half recognizable as Bacon's. To understand what this is about, you need to recall that on the eve of Bacon's great retrospective exhibition at the Grand Palais in Paris, on the 25th of October, 1971, his lover, George Dyer, had been found dead in their shared room at the Hotel de Saint-Pere, Bacon's sleeping pills strewed all around him in the bathroom. Their violence, Bacon's and George's uh, violence when he came in at nights had disturbed the guests and they'd kept complaining. At the preview, I was his guest, we waited for him among the pictures. Might have been a night like this. 
but uncharacteristically, our courteous, genial, and punctual, enthusiastic host did not appear. We found this strange until we learned next day that he had been detained by the French police to help with his inquiries. The French police and the French press had a field day, recalling that Bacon's lover, Peter Lacey, had died on the eve of Bacon's Tate Gallery retrospective in May 1962. Bacon was furious and disgusted. Here he is bending down to wipe his bottom with a newspaper cutting. And to confirm that, look at untitled kneeling figure 82, where the headless sphinx-like uh, woman is doing just that. As you look at this picture, with its perspective plinth on which a semi-kneeling female, female figure is presented, Bacon's interest in trying to produce three dimensions, depth, on a two-dimensional canvas is obvious. He once told me to ask Mr. Moore whether he would give Bacon <laughs> sculpture lessons. When I told Henry this, he said, what an interesting idea, and did nothing about it. <laughs> but the two could never have worked together in this way. But look at two figures in a room, 1959. Bacon had bought a magazine, fashionable at that time, complete with cardboard glasses, one cellophane eyehole red and the other eyehole green, so that one could put them on and see the pictures in 3D. But in the magazine, they looked out of focus, this search for the third dimension. Bacon's two figures copy the green outlines and the red color of these blurred magazine photos out of focus until one wears the cardboard glasses as an experiment. Moore, of course, did not have this problem. And Bacon, like Picasso and Braque before them, was jealous of the advantage that sculpture has over painting. The viewer of a painting has only one view of the canvas, whereas the spectator of a piece of sculpture can have an infinite number of views merely by walking slowly round it. The solution, as you all know, that Braque and Picasso came up with was that of Mercator. A map of the sphere of the world can be made by wrapping a grid round the globe to bring all to the front as the paper is then flattened out, giving us the creative distortions of cubism. Bacon's attempted solutions did not draw on cubism, but they did include, for instance, man kneeling in grass, though that could only be a one-off success because it depends entirely on surprise. As Henry entered his mid-80s, his thoughts turned more and more to his family and to Mary, and to Mary's babe named after him, who is sitting in the front row. His own childhood and youth, it had been a church background with Sunday school and regular worship. He asked me about my Christianity. He said, confirmation was a very important happening in my feelings and emotional outlook. It was not until 1917, and don't forget he was born two years before the century, that his belief finally failed in the carnage of the trenches. But now, as our century turned to autumn, and he with it, 
He wanted once again to talk and think about it. I explained that a poet was not a theologian, but reminded him that his hero, Michelangelo, had turned to drawing the crucifixion when he was at Moore's age. And so we took down a book of his works on paper. Michelangelo was 89 when he died, he said, as he reached for it. I'm determined to outlive him. Didn't quite. As we looked at the Michelangelo drawings, Henry wanted to talk about how he had achieved the feeling, how Michelangelo had achieved the feeling of weight as Christ hangs from the nails through his hands. We need the picture. There it is. Um, he pointed out that in the sheet, this one, in the British Museum, titled Three Crosses, Michelangelo has increased the muscular tension by making the cross not the traditional capital T, or the I crossed out, but a capital Y, with a crossbar along the top. If you look hard, you can see that it is a Y with a crossbar. This makes the body drag even more on the arms. He also pointed out to me that each side of the crucified Christ, the two thieves were not seen as nailed, so heightening to the anguish of Christ, but with their arms bent back from their shoulders behind them over the crossbar of their two traditional capital T crosses. The contrast between the agonies of each of the three, for instance, only Christ has his feet nailed, Michelangelo has here, as he approaches his own death, reimagined the pain of the scene at a profound level as he himself approaches his end. If you look at Moore's drawing Crucifixion 3, 82, in this exhibition, you will see Henry's version of this with one arm of Christ wrenched back over the crossbar of a traditional cross. And if you look at crucifixions one and two, sketched just before, also in charcoal, wax, crayon, pencil, and watercolor wash, you will recognize this other influence, the Y-shaped cross of Michelangelo. I will end on a note both personal and public. You have here in this exhibition, terror and beauty the deeply evocative Second World War photographs by Bill Brandt. <coughs> I am the last generation of those who lived through that crucifixion of London, survived just through the heart, the heat, and the sorrow of its five long years. Once we are gone, no one else will know what it was like. No one else will have the right to say, what I'm about to say to you, what I've come across the Atlantic to say to you, perhaps for the last time. Your generous parents and grandparents came to help save us and the persecuted minorities from the monstrous killing machine, that world of evil that had swallowed Europe. We in England alone remained. We had our back to the wall. Your Royal Canadian Navy destroyed at least 27 U-boats 
as it crossed the infested Atlantic Ocean to bring us food and weapons we so desperately needed. Over one million Canadians and Newfoundlanders served. Of these, the cream and flour of your country, your nation, 45,000 were killed, 55,000 were maimed and wounded. Had together, 100,000 of you had their families wrecked. Both Henry Moore and Francis Bacon knew this. We knew what the Canadians had done. We talked of it. We did not forget. We have not forgotten. I am left alive now because you spilt the blood of your young to come to our aid. So tonight I embody my country's and my own deepest gratitude that a human can bring. God bless you. I have a feeling when I open the dictionary tomorrow and look up the word remarkable that your photograph is going to be next to that word. That was truly remarkable. Thank you so, so much. I want also to say that you gave me a personal gift by showing a photograph of Bill Withrow, who was and is for me a hero and who made such an enormous contribution to this institution. So thank you for that gift to me. I want also to share a little bit of AGO news, if I could which is when I joined uh, the AGO a number of years ago, I was joined by a most remarkable and wonderful colleague, Nora Farrell, who told us uh, a few days ago that she's leaving the AGO to become some big honcho at the Royal Conservatory of Music, which is great for her because she loves music, but it's lousy news for us. So I just want to say, Nora, thank you for everything you've done, truly. I want to say the exhibition is open for those of you who wish to join us. We're going to go into the exhibition for a bit, so feel free to join us. The stairs behind us are open, the elevators for those of you who want it. The stairs are quicker if you're up to it. And also to say what I never tire of saying, Frank Restaurant is open tonight. <laughs> and uh, there is a catalog for the exhibition that's for sale downstairs. But truly, thank you, thank you for believing in your Art Gallery of Ontario. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at agonet slash 
Talks.